Please turn to uh, Galatians. Galatians 5, and I'll read verses uh, 7 through 15. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you, who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would have it to be a, uh, a life changer for each of us. We pray, Father, that we would not just hear this as words of men, but as words of our Creator, our God, uh, the Sovereign who owns us now while we're here in this flesh and will own us throughout eternity as we leave this flesh. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can count on you uh, for so many things. Uh, just as, as was uh, said this morning with Mackenzie's baptism, uh, Father, you are our God. We are your children, and we pray that you would uh, come here and be with us now as we glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, of course, this uh, text builds on the previous one. We just talked about verses 1 through 6 last week, and it was uh, liberty. It was all about liberty and enjoying the liberty that you experience. And so then he moves from that thought to this thought that we're going to explore today. So he starts out saying, you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And again, Paul is using an illustration from running. You would think that maybe he was a runner, but I doubt that. Uh, you know, he was probably a, a, uh, in the church from his youth, and I don't think he had any extra time to be devoting himself to running. And when we learned, as Phil was preaching through Acts, that men ran naked back then in races, I really doubt Paul did that. And so, but he tied these cultural examples in with his preaching. He was preaching to these Galatians, and they're there to hear him, and he shares examples from their culture. And so really, I think any preacher is called upon to do that, and given the example by Paul that that's what he does. He connects to his culture through these metaphors. Now, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so you were running well. You're not running well any longer, and so that much is obviously implied. And it says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. So now we're saying, okay, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So now you're running well, but someone has hindered you. And if any of you have ever seen a race, you know that people can be hindered as they're running a race. Sometimes it's not the intention of the person that runs into the other person, but sometimes I believe it is. Sometimes you as a runner might be feared by other runners and they can take an opportunity to sabotage you, knock you off the track. You're their main competition, so if they think they can get away with it, perhaps they'll attempt it. So what's being attempted here? As a matter of fact, in the NIV it says, who cut in on you? The NIV is very clear 
in continuing the metaphor of the running. So you ran well, but someone cut in on you. And now also he asks here, who hindered you? And then later he says, whoever troubles you. So Paul might have in mind someone or some party. Elsewhere he refers to, to them as the Judaizers. But here maybe he's speaking of people in particular, people that he knew, people that they knew. We just don't know from the context. But he is saying very clearly that they are hindering you and you should not listen to them. You should not obey them. But now, to hinder is not to prevent, right? So what happens if a, if a person, a runner, gets knocked off the track? Is he going to lay alongside the track and boo-hoo? I think that maybe is implied here. Why aren't you running? They can hinder you, but they can't stop you. You stop when you don't get up and get back on the track. So he's accusing them of not getting back into the race as he believes he knows they should. And, he get, and it gets to that a little bit later. Now, the, he says in verse 8, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And so what is the persuasion? The persuasion is to not be on the track running. So whatever it is that has dissuaded you from the fact that this is important, that this is what you should do, that is not of God. How often, though, do we deal with people who are trying to justify their sin, trying to justify some action that on the face of it is not a godly act? And yet they try to say, oh, no, this is what God wants me to do. But no, Paul here still says very clearly, no, this is not of God. And how do we know what is of God and what is not of God? We know that what is of God squares with his word. He's not going to tell us to sin against him to sin against others in this bold way. That is not God's way. God will always have you oriented towards truth, always oriented towards obedience. And so if you are hearing voices to the contrary, they're liars. But that voice might be telling you something to do that you want to do already. It's appealing to something inside of you. And so what Paul is getting at is the fact that, hey, you ran well, you're not running well now. Whoever knocked you off the track is guilty of this. But you have to get up. And you can't blame God for this because you know what you should do. And so don't blame God for the fact that you got knocked off the track. Get up. Get up. That's what he wants us to do. And then he uses another proverb here. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And in other uh, versions, we see that in quotes. And so uh, we know that he's obviously quoting some proverb from their culture. A little leaven leavens the whole hump. So, lump. So what is he saying by that phrase? Well, he's saying, you might think this is a little thing, but it's never a little thing. Any disobedience is always a big thing because it's the principle that's behind it. And so if you indulge in just a little bit of disobedience, a little bit of self-righteousness, a little bit of me, 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 and I don't care what you have to say, God, then it won't end there. It will always lead you further down the path to your own destruction. And so he's warning you against that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's like weeds. I, I can remember us finding weeds. Well, I sometimes pull up plants in Tabitha's garden un unknowingly, but I can remember her finding weeds, and she knows they're a weed, but they're so pretty. 
that she lets them live for a time. And I can remember allowing a little weed. It was growing so fast, I was impressed by it. But two weeks later, this was this mulberry tree, and its roots an inch wide, and it's, and it's eight feet tall. And I mean, if I didn't take care of it then, who knows where it would have been two weeks later or two months later. And so now I'm getting loppers out to take care of this weed as opposed to pulling it out when it looks so pretty. I, 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 I see this all the time. I'm sure you all do. But you'll see a little one, a very tiny one. And so, no, no. This one kid is climbing up the ladder at the park, and he's wanting to uh, go down the slide. And his, his, uh, uh, the, the adult that's with him is trying to help him. No, me, no, me. He wants to climb it up himself. Oh, isn't that cute? Might be. But, you know, a year later, two years later, it's not so cute anymore when your kid is running roughshod over all adults in their life. And all the adults want to avoid you because your child is so bad. But see, it starts so cute. It starts so small. And we indulge it. We indulge it in our heart. We indulge it in our society. And we come to repent of that. We come to recognize the error in our ways. And so we have to change it. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord. Again, he's kind of changing. He's weaving together a lot of thoughts very, very quickly in this part. And now he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He's distinguishing between belief and unbelief. He's distinguishing between obedience and disobedience. And he's telling them, I know you. I've been with you. I know you want to obey God. And so he immediately presumes that they will, that they hear him, that they will obey him. And he differentiates that action from continuing to follow whoever it is that is hindering them. So he's drawing a distinction. You, if you maintain the path of obedience, will be rewarded for that obedience. And yet he who is hindering you will come under the judgment. There's always a path. There's always a split. And he points it out very clearly. So now this is not a wishful uh, confidence, I don't think, on Paul's part. He knows these people. He knows that many people that he's writing to know better. They just need to be strengthened in their resolve to withstand sin. And that is really the purpose of us uh, in, in speaking wisdom into one another's lives. We strengthen one another often to do what we know is right. Sometimes your uh, assistance of someone might just be listening They talk all the way through their problem and they come up with the solution and you've had to say very little. You know that. They just need you as a sounding board. And and in the end, they think that you're so wise. And you're just patient. You're just patiently listening to them work through all that they already know, all that they already must do. And then you just affirm them in that. Oh, yeah, I think think what you're going to do is good. It's a good path. So now... His authority and confidence in himself, in his own authority, Paul's, allows him to speak with this firm of a statement to say, you're in obedience, you will be rewarded. You're in disobedience, you will be judged for this. This is just the clear-cut words of a leader who speaks with authority. So now, Paul is a man, obviously, in the word that writes with authority. And yet there is another that I want to bring uh, about an example in, and that is Moses. And if you go back to Numbers 16, you don't have to go there if you don't want to, but I'll turn back to Numbers 16 and read a portion. But this is where Korah rebels. I just, I love this. It is just so interesting to me. Many movies that you see will show a challenge of the leader. 
They're in, they're, all these people are kind of arbitrarily thrown into some difficulty. And then a person emerges as a leader and they're leading and they're doing this. But then eventually someone gets to challenge the leader. Who made you leader? And so now there's this vying for leadership. And that's what's occurring here. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Liab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. These are not, not nobodies. They gathered against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourself for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And know what Moses says. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company in humility, saying, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses will come to come near him. Do this. And then he immediately commands them as the leader to do the censor test. And what did these men do? They obey him. They acknowledge that he's the leader, that he's the spokesman, that he's got it in with God, and they don't. It's just so foolish. They don't even recognize their own irrational response to what Moses says. They can't see because they're in rebellion, because they're set on a course of disobedience. And so it's just, I think, another example of exactly what Paul is talking to. He's talking to these people. They know he's the leader. And yet elsewhere, we see in the other epistles and here that he's, his authority has been questioned. Galatians probably more so than any other. But by now, he's like, okay, now you acknowledge me as the leader. I'm going to tell you what to do. Uh, this, is, this is what the uh, person who's uh, disobeying and hindering you, this is what will happen to them. This is what will happen you, to you if you maintain this path of obedience. It's just a beautiful illustration of what Gary alluded to earlier and that, that uh, superstructure of authority that God has given that is so simple. And yet when we rebel against it, we go right into sin. Whether you rebel against it in the family, in the church, or in society, all roads of rebellion lead just to, to grievous uh, results in people's lives for the fact that you're in rebellion. God does not like rebels. So now, the next portion says, if I still preach, oh, not from Numbers, I'm not going to get that. Uh, Galatians 5, verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So he's being accused of preaching circumcision from these Galatians. The Judaizers who have come to the Galatians to try to convince them that Paul shouldn't be obeyed says, well, even Paul preaches circumcision. And so he's having to defend himself against what the Judaizers themselves are teaching. And so last week I alluded to the fact that Paul could potentially be accused of being fickle in regards to circumcision. Because the first occurrence of this that we see is where the Judaizers come and they oppose uh, the, the people that just say that Christians don't need to be circumcised. And so he goes up to Jerusalem. And I believe it's there that the Judaizers are trying to say, you must circumcise Titus because he is an uncircumcised believer in our midst. And Paul fights against them. No, you're not going to have that happen. And he wins. He emerges victorious from that, from that big meeting in Jerusalem. But then he goes on his mission journey 
and now he's at Galatia and he's gone through and now he's writing a letter back to them and they're trying to say, oh, you must be circumcised. And they're saying, you had, you had Timothy circumcised in Lystra. He did. Timothy's father was a Greek and his, and his mother was a, or his father was a, a Greek and his mother was a Jew. And so Timothy was not circumcised. But Paul had him circumcised so that he could travel with him on his ministry journeys. So see, he'd fought tooth and nail to not get, have Titus be circumcised. And yet here he has Timothy be circumcised. What is he, fickle? No. There's absolutely a different reason behind the circumcision of Timothy versus the non-circumcision of Titus. And it has to do with the intentions were at work. Why did he have Timothy circumcised? Because he wanted to minister with him. He wanted to be able to take him into the temple. And he couldn't do that with uncircumcised Timothy. No such thing was true with Titus. That is, he, he didn't want Titus to do this. And more importantly, the people that wanted Titus circumcised wanted so only on principle that you must be circumcised because you're a Christian now. And he fought them tooth and nail. So see, this is why surface appearances are not where you want to stop. You need to dig down deeper. You need to get at the, the motivation as to why people want to do what they're doing. So he says, if I believed circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In other words, I would be one with them in spirit, one with them in principle, and yet I'm not, you know I'm not. And what does the last sentence there in verse 11 say? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So you have to understand what is the offense of the cross. So now, we know that it was a, a uh, uh, not, not a, uh, an offense, but a curse to be hanged upon a tree, right? And so we know that in Jewish culture, to be hanged upon a tree was to have a curse placed upon you. You were cursed. So is that what we're saying when we're talking about the offense of the cross? Was the offense that Christ was hanged on a tree? No, no, because that would be pointing at it as being a physical cross. And so the offense of the cross was not the curse of the cross in their culture. It had to be something different. Galatians 3.13 says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But we have to dig into the word offense. What, where does offense come from? And if you go to Romans 9, starting at verse 30, I'll read four verses. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so here we see that the offense is referred to as a rock bringing it. And yet, here in Galatians, I believe Paul is referring to it as the cross bringing it. It's still the same thing. Offense is still the central theme. And now, turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if, if you're flipping pages here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18...
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the offense is the foolishness of the cross and why is the cross foolish? Because it doesn't appeal to man. As a matter of fact, it is the opposite. It offends man. And why does it offend man? Because it says your wisdom, your works are meaningless to God in the great scheme of things. Your works mean nothing in terms of your righteousness and your status before God. And that offends man. And so you have to go to Galatians understanding exactly what Paul is saying and how seriously he is attacking works having anything to do with salvation because he says and I brethren if I still preach circumcision why do I still suffer persecution then the offense of the cross has ceased not only has it been lessened not only has it been weakened it has absolutely ceased and I think that's very important for us to understand because in our modern culture, we condone a lot of works righteousness attitudes and actions and beliefs. We have, a, we have a, a, a presidential candidate, Mitt Romney, that is a Mormon. And we have many Christians that really are beginning to say, what is the big whoop about this? There is no difference. Yet when you study Mormonism, you know it is a cult. You know it is based on works righteousness. It is not predicated on the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. And so it is heretical. And the people that follow it are heretical. I would go so far as to those that really understand Roman Catholic faith and who practice that are heretics because the Bible is very clear in opposing any, any, any whiff of works righteousness. And yet the whole Roman Catholic system is predicated on works righteousness. It, it revolves around that much more so than Mormonism, in my opinion, having studied both of them to some degree. But so I believe that Paul would be aghast at how we do not hold Christians' feet to the fire that we must have it all based on the grace of Christ. It is only the grace of Christ that saves. You bring nothing. I love the quote. We, we quote it a lot, but it, hey, it's biblical, you know. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, menstrual rags, bloody rags that are fit for nothing but being thrown out, regardless of where and when we execute them, whether now in faith or in non-faith. It doesn't matter. It's all unrighteousness. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't reward us as a loving, caring God. He rewards us for our works, but in no way related to our salvation. They're entirely separate activities. Now, 
I want to go on to this next thought, and I love this thought. I, I don't know if you uh, saw my comment on Facebook, but I mentioned this the other day. Uh, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, Paul is being pretty subtle here. I don't know if the Hebrew is quite as subtle. But he's saying, don't stop with the foreskin. Take it all off. That's what he's saying. You know, he's not saying it that vulgarly, and yet he is saying it. And this is in the word of God. And so God uses humor, visceral, image-filled humor, in order to get his point across. Paul is, is being very caustic here. And the Bible is filled with this. You, I remember, I mean, the, as a young Christian reading about Elijah on Mount Carmel and how he taunts those prophets of Baal. Yell louder. Maybe he is sleeping. Maybe he's away on a holiday. And what do they do? They yell louder. He's the leader. He's the one that set up the test. He's the one that's holding their feet to the fire on the test. He's the obvious leader here. Again, you just have this irrational acceptance of a leader while fighting him. Now, I was uh, in a church in Escondido as a young Christian, as a young Reformed believer, and it was called New Life. And it's where Phil probably worshipped when they were out in Escondido. At the time it was OPC and now it's PCA, I believe. And I was in a Sunday school class. Now, you're dealing with a church that has a wealth of talent. I mean, you've got all these seminary students. And so there's a young seminary student, and he's teaching a Sunday school class. And he's got, you know, before uh, the days of slides and PowerPoint and all that, uh, he had the, uh, the, the machine that projects. What do they call that? Uh, we used to use them. I I'm so forgetful. Yeah, and, and he would rotate through in his slides. And, and you look at his notes, and he has X everywhere. X, 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 X. X stands for Christ, right? Just like it does in Xmas. And he was just using it as a shorthand for his notes. Oh, people were aghast. This is practically sacrilege in Sunday school class to be re referring to Christ's name as with an X. So first they took him to task for that. Now this guy just kept digging. And so he goes on and, and he essentially absorbs all of their criticism of him, him using the term the, the symbol X for Christ, when he happens to mention how he likes to find cheap Bibles. Because what he will do with those cheap Bibles is when he's using them to study, using them to pull things together, he would take a razor blade and he would cut out whole sections of the Bible so that he could pull them into his notes and just paste them in there. This was 1982. Not only is he writing X for Christ, but now he's cutting up the Holy Bible. I mean, we're in a, a seminary Sunday school, and I mean, these people were so upset with him. I felt so bad for him. I, I mean, that's just, I, th I thought, well, these people, I mean, I've been a Christian for what, maybe two years? And I know, this one doesn't say it. I wish I brought one that said Holy Bible. But you know, this is a book, right? Shocked you, didn't it, Ruth? This is a book, right? Sure, it is filled with God's word. God, this is God's word. And yet it is a book. Have you ever thrown a Bible away? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to throw a Bible away. <laughs> the, the binding falls off, it stays on the shelf. I'm not throwing that away. God's going to strike me dead if I throw that book away. But it's a book, right? But let me, let me share with you, though, the meaning behind the book. So we know it's just a book. I, I, I don't want to throw this one away. It's very nice. But if I had a bad one, 
you should feel entirely comfortable throwing away a Bible that's been ruined. You spilled coffee all over it. What are you going to do with it? Well, don't put it on a bookshelf, right? There's always a box it can go in. We need never throw anything away, right? But now it's only a book. But let me share with you what happened. Like, let's say that there were people, let's say that it's 50 years from now, and God forbid this would be the state 50 years from now, but we know it might be. And let's say that what we're doing is illegal now. You know, not only has the word of God been banned at, at public speaking engagements, like in courthouses or at, or at uh, commencement addresses, but now you just don't say it. It's been declared as hate speech. We know it's filled with wicked stuff. And oh, it divides people. It's horrible. Why do you read that? Well, you're not going to read it anymore, at least not in a public setting. And so let's say that someone breaks in here. The, 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 the brown storm troopers have come in. They've heard about this assembly and they're going to fix this. And so they take this book and they throw it against the wall. And they say that everybody's free to leave if you do the same. Now is it just a book? Now is it just something that if I spill coffee on it, I can throw it away? No, no. Now it's a symbol of Jesus Christ. Now it's a symbol of who we are and what we believe. I would, I would say that those that do throw the Bible against the, Bible, the, the wall to walk out are really giving in to that person, what they're commanding you to do in disobeying Christ. And as a matter of fact, this happens. See, this is, not, this is conjectural in our society, but it's real worldwide. And so a Korean girl in a church in, in what is now South Korea, at the time it was just Korea, the communists invaded, the soldiers come into the church, it, they're holding a church service, and they end it, of course, and, and they take a picture of Jesus that is on the wall. You won't find that in our Presbyterian church, but they took a picture of Jesus that was on the wall, and they took it over to the door. They smashed it there with the picture facing up, and they said, you're free to leave. All you need to do is spit on that picture as you walk out the door. So beginning with a, a, a man, they, they basically line them all up, and a uh, deacon walked up there, spit on the picture, and left. An old lady, probably a Christian for years, walked up, spit on the picture, and left. The next girl, a young teenage girl, walked over, picked up the picture, wiped it on her skirt, hugged it to her chest. They said, everybody's free to go. So everybody else left except this girl, and then they shot her. And so it isn't that they wanted to kill everybody, but they at least wanted to kill somebody to make a point to the rest of the people that this is what they faced by pursuing Christ. And so that girl, as in comparison to this deacon and this elderly woman, just saw the reality of what she was being asked to do, and she couldn't do it. No, not going to do that. So the same thing with me. I might toss my Bible down, but if I had a stormtrooper come in and tell me to do that, no. <laughs> and it's not just me being belligerent. It's me being faithful. But I had to toss it just to show you that it's just a book. And I felt sorry for that seminary student. But now, this is real in our culture too. It's not just in Korea. It's not just in the U.S. 50 years from now. These images of Jesus, like I said, you know, Presbyterians, we just don't believe in those. And yet, I had a friend years ago uh, say that they shared with me. Actually, the wife asked me. She said, what do you think about these pictures of Jesus? And I said, personally, I, I don't want to see them in worship, you know. I mean, I can understand in Sunday school they might have a picture of Jesus. Jesus was a real person after all. 
And I don't know that it's absolutely forbidden, but I know that opinions vary all over the map in the Reformed faith and have. But it's what's behind it. It's, it's the realism behind it. And so what this woman shared with me is she says, well, I have this picture of Jesus that I've had from my youth. It was in out my bedroom, and I want it in my children's bedroom. I want it there on the wall above their beds, but my husband doesn't want it there. I said, well, I think it's an idol. I told her, I said, I don't think you should put that picture of Jesus in your children's room because you somehow perceive that God, with that picture there, is somehow then more walking, uh, watching over your children than if the picture wasn't there. That's wrong. That's idolatry. That is appealing to this sinful impulse within us to have something tangible, just like the Jews did with the ark, something tangible that we can use to manipulate God as opposed to accepting the fact that he is omnipresent. We don't need this picture to represent Jesus loving our children. So I believe that this type of misrepresentation of symbols is prolific in our culture. We get so confused over it. And so I will fight both ways, when it is being misinterpreted as a symbol and when it's appropriate to view it as a symbol. But now, the main purpose I wanted to get from verse 12, though, which I went way off track from, is... Paul's use of humor. The Bible is filled with humor. The Bible is filled with all forms of human expression. I listened recently to an infilo's guide to the Quran, and I've tried to read the Quran. The Quran is incredibly boring. I don't know if any of you have read the Quran, but I don't like it. It's boring to me. Now, the Bible, people can say the Bible might be boring. You know, there are boring parts. I would admit it. You know, I'm not about to rip that section out and toss it in the trash. It's hard to slog through some of those parts where they keep repeating everything all the time. You know, I was just listening to Second, uh, First Kings in like uh, chapters 8 and 9 where the building of Solomon's temple is being described and it gets very repetitive. And I must admit, I'm not quick to rewind. If I get to the end of the chapter and I think, wait a minute, I miss parts again, rewind up. Uh, third time, nope, not going back there anymore. I have to go on. I, and so I love it in part and yet I understand that there's this human aspect to which it's, uh, it's difficult to get through. All of the treatment of the priests on how to treat the leprosy of the scalp and stuff that I, Phil, Phil and I kid one another about. Um, that's what we want to preach on next week. Yeah. And, so, uh, and so anytime I ask him what he wants me to preach on, he'll say leprosy of the scalp, of course. But that's just his way of saying, you know, preach on whatever you want. Don't, don't wait for me to pick one for you. But so... Our Bible is so beautiful. It is, it is so incredibly complex and knit together. It is nothing like the Quran. I, I, uh, this infidel's guide to the Quran is essentially a rebuke to modern Americans who are just embracing the Quran, like our former president and our present president, and pulling these various portions of the Quran out of context in order to say, oh no, we have nothing to worry about. Oh no, you do. You see, with Christians, the more liberal you get, the more you get away from the Bible, right? It's true for Muslims too. The more liberal you get, the more you get away from the Quran. But the more diligent you get in studying the Bible, the more conservative you really become. I want to do what God wants me to do. It's the same for the Quran. And the Quran tells them to kill us. And so the people that aren't killing us are the liberals. They might prevail in certain countries, but to the degree that people will be faithful to the book, they are going to want to kill us. So it's just that's why this guy wrote this book. He said, you should know, you infidels, <laughs> what the, the true believing Muslims want to do to you. 
Now, we come to verse 13. And this harkens back to last week where we talked about liberty. And so in uh, Galatians 5.13, we read, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We are free in Christ. We are free. You are free to sin. God doesn't zap you dead like you're a bug hitting a bug light, does he? No, we sin so much. I remember as a young Christian just experiencing the freedom to sin for the first time after I came down from this mountaintop high of having been saved. And I was, I I thought, I can't do this. I'm a believer. Am I not a believer? What's going to happen to me? Have I lost my salvation? I mean, as a a young 19-year-old man who didn't know any Christians, I became a Christian and I didn't know any Christians. All I had was my little New Testament that I was reading that the Marine Corps gave me. I, don't, I doubt they give them out anymore. I don't know. But I got a little Green New Testament when I was joined the Marine Corps. And so it was that that brought me to Christ. But so I was fearful for my salvation. I, I didn't understand what was happening. And yet, obviously, what I had overlooked was the fact that I was still sinning like crazy from the day I became a believer. But I had so fallen in love with God and with Christ that I didn't notice it as clearly until it became very obvious was staring me in the face and I was indulging in it and I thought what am I doing I'm God's child so see we can sin as Christians we can sin as egregiously as anybody on earth and yet there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so see many in the church throughout time don't like that and so they want to basically say They want to put fear into you by saying, okay, I'm a leader of the church and I'm saying this. I'm going to make rules now that you have to obey in order to be right with God, to feel good about yourself. They're not comfortable with the fact that people think they're evil and think that they're falling into all this sin and it's going to rip them away from God's safety. And so then that's what the Roman Catholics have done. They've substituted the church for that. If you want safety and security, do what I say. Then you're in. If you come to me and and share your sins, okay, then you just need to do this. There's a list. Go fulfill it. Now you feel good. It's just that simple. And so we Christians who really don't believe that, I think in many ways have it rougher. We wish that we could do it like that. We wish we could just do this, do this, you know, say that. Ah, I feel better now. But see, God wants you to understand that freedom. He wants you to be free. He wants you to choose obedience. He wants you to choose life. He wants you to choose righteousness. And yet the degree to which in our flesh as Christians we continue to choose unrighteousness is the degree to which it drives us crazy. He wants us to be driven crazy in this flesh because he wants us to want holiness like he loves holiness. And do you? That's the question. Do we? Oh, we can become so hardened in our sins, even as believers. Out of one side of our mouth, we're saying, oh, I love the Lord. And yet on the other side, we're indulging in sinful self-indulgence. And yet, as long as they're staying away from one another in our minds or in physical time, physical place, we're fine with it. We can go on trying to fool ourselves. So we Christians have enormous liberty. And don't let anyone take that away from you. That's God-given. 
The church has no authority to take that liberty from you. Now, as leaders in the church, we have authority that God has given us. But do we have swords? Can I have a sword to make you do what I want or to kill you if you don't do what I want? No. What did God give me? Keys. Excellent. He gave me keys. All I can do is open the door and, and invite people in. Come on in. Come on in. Sometimes, though, he has given the elders the authority to go in and drag someone out. You don't belong here. Get out. We're bouncers, I must admit. We're very nice bouncers, but God has given us that authority too. But see, all we have are keys. I can't beat you up with my keys. All I can do is control that door. And all I can do is essentially go in there and point you to it. I've, I've read of churches where they have difficulty with people. These people don't belong in church. They've, they've shown over and over again that they don't respect the church, and yet they come. And so churches have to hire guards to actually physically remove certain individuals from the church service. It's something that some churches have to do. Uh, the, the church, Mars Hill Church, you know, that pastor, I mean, he has bodyguards to protect him from people that want to kill him uh, for, for how he so bluntly attacks sin in our society. So now, what are we to do about this? For you, brethren, have been called to liberty only. Do not use liberty as an opportunity to flesh, but through love serve one another. So see, that's the question. You have the liberty. I cannot take that liberty from you. But the question is, what will you do with that liberty? Will you live out your life in self-indulgence? Because you can. But will you... Do as God said, and through love, serve one another. That's what he's calling every one of you to do. Through love, serve one another. We are, as Christians, called to be more and more selfless. With the liberty he's given us, we're essentially sacrificing it for others. That's what we're called upon to do. I brought this, and I really hope I can get through it without too much emotion. Uh, it's actually the illustration that Phil just alluded to in recent days, uh, a few weeks ago. This book is The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom. And I want to read to you the extended incident where she comes face-to-face -face with this former Ravensbrook guard. It's one of the first, actually, people she runs into of the Nazis after the war. And so it did actually, after this, get easier for her to embrace them. But this was the first one. And so listen to this. Now she's uh, re referring to the fact that God had given her a vision in the final days of the war, of her being imprisoned, that, that is, uh, of building a home after the war. And it was in Blumendahl. I continued to speak partly because the home in Blumendahl ran on contributions, partly because the hunger for Betsy's story seemed to increase with time. I traveled all over Holland, to other parts of Europe, to the United States. But the place where the hunger was greatest was Germany. Germany was a land in ruins, cities of ashes and rubble, but more terrifying still, minds and hearts of ashes. Just to cross the border was to feel the great weight that hung over the land. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. 
How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Bloomingdale, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. It took a lot of love. What I wanted to share there is based on the fact that we are to serve through love, not in love. I think there's a huge distinction here. And what I just read you was Corey experiencing the absence of in love. She didn't have that at all. And yet she knew that through love, the love of Christ, she could do this. And that's what her prayer requested. You, God, can make this happen. And so I believe that when she did this act of obedience, and actually that only through the prayer that she had prayed that Jesus Christ would allow her hand to move, the warmth flowed through her and into that man, and she was overwhelmed with it. She was overcome by it. And this man had still done all of those evil things at Ravensbrook, and yet here she was overwhelmed with love for him. And so now see, it was love that it was accomplished through. Love was a means. And it was not something that she had the ability to control. She could only rely upon God giving it at that moment that it was needed. The next verse says, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law was broken through one selfish act of Eve and Adam. Because if, you know, if, you, if you've ever noticed, when you read that story, the pronouncement of judgment did, did not come upon them until Adam also imbibed of that fruit. That's when it appears God steps in to condemn them. Yet, one selfish action, they're eating that fruit in disobedience to God. And yet the law was fulfilled through one action also, one selfless action, the sacrifice of Christ, him sacrificing himself. And he calls upon us to sacrifice in much that same way. The Jewish teachers got lost in the simplicity of the message, just as many Christian teachers nowadays get lost in the complexity of the message. It still all really does come down to love. And so the simplicity of Christianity is love. And yet we, and especially as leaders in the church, I think we can just fall into the trap of wanting to make the church better, purer than how God sees it. 
God uses his love, his grace to purify the church. It isn't our actions. It isn't our works righteousness that can purify it. That's just another sin. That's just another ugly thing that needs to be gotten rid of. And yet so often we can have this value on it that is not meant to be there. So now you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how it works out, right? This is the word that Paul just referenced. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the question is, how do we love ourselves? How do you love yourself? Do you write yourself love letters? Of course not. So how do you love yourself? You know, you love yourself like I love myself in a hundred thousand ways a day. Who of us, if we have a, a little itch, won't scratch it? Who of us, if we're the slightest uncomfortable in our seat, won't, won't move in order to accommodate it? We seek our comfort every instant of every day because we experience it, right? We're so fully absorbed in ourself, our skin, our flesh, that we're always trying to make it more comfortable. We're always trying to please it. I have a, a very interesting illustration where that's not the case, though. Uh, Hudson Taylor, when he was training to become a missionary, you know, the father of the modern missionary movement, he wanted to go to China. He wanted to endure the difficulties he would face there. And so he went all the way up to the attic in their house that w was actually open to the elements. It needed repairing. The snow would come in. The rain would come in. And that's where he put his bed. He wanted to live in the elements because he wanted to toughen himself up to be a missionary. And what's interesting, though, is that when he went to China, he got to experience that again, and this time not by his choosing. Again in China, he's living in these, these, these hovels that, where the wind and the snow is blowing in through the building. And yet he had trained himself through denying himself. And he had done that for a very explicit purpose. And so when we read about it, it's like, wow, that is amazing. Who does that type of stuff? And so it, it appeals to us, though, because it's so heroic. It is so out of accord with what we ourselves experience day to day. Because I love myself. I want to treat myself as comfortably as I can. I don't even care that you're uncomfortable. I don't know it. You're not saying anything. I, I, I'm not considerate enough to notice. But me, oh, in an instant. You know, I'm uncomfortable. I got to do this. I could do that. It's just we are so in ourselves that we have to work hard at getting out of ourselves. We eat when we're hungry. We drink when we're thirsty. I was uh, at work, and even when you see people who are enduring something, think about this. I was at work a while back, and uh, it was cold. And I happened to have, I was warmly dressed, and I actually got a windbreaker and put it on, and I was walking to work. And I saw a man walking towards me in short, short sleeves. And now I know, I know Keith can handle this, but I was looking at this man, and I had my doubts. He's just walking along. But I looked back after I'd passed him, and he was walking faster now. And before I, he went out of, out of my vision, he was running. He was really cold. He wanted to get where he was going. But in order to look cool to me... He had to be walking. He was tougher than me. I had this sweater and I had this jacket and he was going to show me. And so, see, even that appealed to him. He was using his own discomfort to elevate his pride. That's how we think. That's how we act. I know that we as Christians have learned to see this in ourselves. We have learned to crucify it in ourselves. At least we should be. And so that's why it's all the more apparent when we see it, because it's like we know that this is the way we should be living, 
and we know when we're not. Now, the last verse, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Uh, the text here is free to serve. That's what I chose as the title. We are free to serve. And yet here at this last clause, Paul adds a warning. If we bite and devour one another, this is gross, isn't it? Again, he's using very, very gross visual imagery. Cannibalism. And it's worse than cannibalism. Normally with cannibalism, you eat people when they're dead. Here, we're eating them alive, just like with zombies. I grew up in the Pittsburgh area, and actually Dawn of the Dead in 1978 was filmed in a mall near where we had grown up. It was filmed for $650,000, and it grossed $55 million at the theaters. So all of you would-be film entrepreneurs, there's good money to be made in making films especially ones that appeal to people, like Dawn of the Dead apparently did. Now, the premise, of course, is old and tired by now. Hell is full. So sad. The dead people are now going to walk among us and eat us. So that's the premise pretty much of all the zombie movies. Hell is full. And we could tell them that, couldn't we? But God is, I'll make make more room. You know, I mean, we have a loving God. I believe he will make more room in hell. He won't (laughs) allow the zombies to walk the earth. But now, uh, this biting and devouring one another, though, it's very visceral. He wants you to experience that. And, and the best spiritual illustrations of this I've seen in the screw tape letters. If you've never read it or listened to it, I urge you to. Uh, very good. It talks about how the demons feed on humans and feed on their sins. And the Peretti books, they portray that well in this uh, piercing the darkness and this present darkness. But so... What he's saying, though, is this. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed. What is the biting and devouring? It's figurative for a reason. He wants this to be striking to you. It's your teeth, right? It's your mouths. It's by our mouths that we're sinning. Gossip, backbiting, talking badly about people, rebelling against authority. All these things we do with our mouths. And he likens it to cannibalism. And so it should be taken very seriously. And so also, he also, what I like here is that he portrays it as a hunger. When these zombies are eating these people, they're hungry. They want to eat these people. We don't know why, but they're eating them. And so there is a hunger driving them. There are hungers within us. When we talk badly about people, when we gossip, it's fueling us somehow, right? There is this immoral hunger in us to do this, to participate in this, even though we know it to be wrong. So Paul is warning us against that. It's all about us giving over to God our self-control. We want to think we can do it. No, God, here I did it again. I blew it. I'm badly. I I do it at work. I admit freely. I, I so want to live out my faith at my work and only speak honoring of the other people that I work with. I don't always do that. And yet when I find myself doing it, I often don't even have the, the uh, courage to tell the person I'm talking to, wait a minute, I shouldn't have said that. That's unfair. You know, and then perhaps repent of it and say something positive about them. I just want it to go away. That's how I mostly deal with sin, isn't it? You just want it to go away. You just slap yourself. You think, oh, Rod, you're such a fool. Why are you behaving like this? And then you just want to forget about it. But that doesn't help. It doesn't make you humble. You want to basically thrust yourself into humbling situations in order to have God drag your nose through these types of things. Change your behavior. God, change my behavior. If you really want your behavior changed, he will bring into your life humbling situations. Do you want that? 
It's hard to want that. You don't want that. I don't want that. But yet, just like with Hudson Taylor, making himself stronger to be able to endure the things that he knew he wanted to endure, we all should want that. We should aspire for those types of situations because God will use them for his glory. And when other Christians have often shared with me, it's easy for me to counsel other people to behave this way. Oh, yeah, this is what you should do, you know. You know, it's hard for me to obey my own advice, but yet I can see the truth when it's plainly presented to me. No, wherever, wherever there's an opportunity for us to humble ourselves, I believe we must. As Christians, we should. It's the right path. Now, God expects obedience from his children. He expects obedience from his children always. And yet he's given us the liberty the liberty to so disobey him time after time after time after time and allow us to draw fuel from that, fuel of humility, fuel of selflessness. God, I don't want to be this selfish and self-centered. So now we've seen how we can so completely and thoroughly and constantly and without really any regret love ourselves. The same compassion that we extend to ourselves moment by moment, day by day, we should be able to extend to others. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. My wife yesterday, we were out driving. We had a weird morning, but uh, as we were driving, I was grumbling a little. And she said, you know, I have an idea. She said, I think I should get a vanity license plate that says per, and you should get one that says grr. <laughs> and that's us. That's us driving. She's so much more patient. My son Josiah, God love him, he's just like her. And so I hope the other kids turn out like my wife in terms of their driving patience. I'm not. Mine is grr. I think I could put that on my plate and it would be honest. But uh, I want to overcome that. And so just as I encouraged you to, I want God to put me then in situations where it requires me to behave more with the purr than the grr. And I want God to do that. God, please do this in my life. I, I proclaim it before you guys. You can hold me accountable. And uh, it doesn't mean it's going to change, though. But it does mean that I want it to change and that hopefully God will make me much more sensitive to my failures such that he will get me correcting my own behavior before I need other people to be correcting my behavior. We have, a, we have I think I've mentioned this before, we have a, a million men, over a million men in American prisons. That's because they can't correct their behavior. They are reliant upon the state. And so we, of all people, Christians, do not want to be like that. We want God to regulate our behavior through our, uh, using our liberty in obedience to him selflessly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul and the wisdom that he conveys in so few words here, and yet we know it comes from you. We know that all good things come down to us from the Father of lights. And so we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for your presence with us by the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling your children. And we pray, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, that you would uh, work your will in us to where we want to live for you. We want to evince character that is becoming to the children of God. So we ask you and plead with you now, Lord, to make it so in our lives. We give ourselves to you uh, thoroughly and without reservation in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.